Hi everyone and welcome to the Progress Podcast. I'm joined today by James. Thanks so much for joining us, James. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks, Leo. Yeah, I'm James and I live in Victoria and I am an elder. I'm 64. I'm a trans male. I had my surgery, my fallow surgery, first stage in 2016. So it's been six years since I had my first surgery. And I had that in Montreal. I had stage two in Montreal. And then I had stage three in Montreal, which took, I guess, the whole procedure, all three stages, about two years, considering that I had some repairs to do in between and I had some complications. We're talking in this episode today about preparing for surgery, which is a really big topic. And I think it can be a challenging thing to talk about, but I'm going to start us off with a really big question that I want to ask here. And that question is just really broadly, what do you think it means to be prepared for surgery? And by surgery, I mean fallow or meta. Like, what do you think it means to be truly and fully prepared to undergo one of these surgeries? I think what it means to be prepared for this type of surgery, you need to do as much research as you can. I know when I started, there wasn't much online that I could look at. Maybe look at some of the surgeons that are doing the surgery so that you have an idea of what their techniques are like. And if possible, maybe talk to other trans guys that have had fallow or meta just to get their word on their experiences. That helps a lot. Although you know what's going to be different for each trans guy, it's good to get an, an idea of what to expect. And I think those are really key to getting prepared for any type of surgery when it comes to that. Absolutely. And one thing I was thinking about is preparing for surgery can be different for different people, right? Some people might know something about yourself that's useful when you're preparing for surgery or planning to prepare. But I also wonder if there's some common themes or some things related to preparing that are common across people that you mentioned, doing your homework, so to speak, talking to surgeons or some of those things. But are there aspects of preparing for follower meta that you think might be different for different people? I think I can only really kind of think about my own experience. One of the major things that I had to think about, and I'd heard from, you know, Transcare BC and some of the people that were getting me ready is... It's, it's a very complex, invasive surgery. And, you know, as a child, I'd had tonsils out and I, you know, that sort of thing. But I don't think I was prepared for the, the length of time it took to heal. I just had no idea that it was going to take that long. I think I was home off of work for about three months. And that was stage one. But each stage had its own recovery period, I think it's really good to get an idea of what to expect as far as once when you get home, the healing process and how long that's going to take. Yeah, that's a really good point. We actually in our survey, we asked people, how much time did you take off of work or school? And then we also asked them, was that enough time? And I'd be really curious to see what people said, because I don't think that people generally plan to take enough time off. And again, it's not easy for people to take time off work. They either don't have coverage or have paid time off. So I think a lot of people probably in the end wound up going back a lot earlier than they thought they would. 
for better or for worse, probably for worse, to be honest. It's pretty brutal getting through this surgery. It's, it's a long haul for sure. I've been doing a lot of literature reviews related to preparing for surgery and that, and that kind of thing. And what I've noticed is that in some surgical disciplines or for other surgeries, there's a lot more patient preparedness programs that are being implemented. And there's actually this concept that they came, came out with called prehabilitation, which usually includes a list of things that the surgeon says the patient should do in order to be prepared for surgery. Nowadays includes, oh, make sure you're exercising in this way because this part of your body is going to be impacted by surgery and you want it to be strong. Practice mindfulness, meditation, so that you can relieve your anxiety. Back when I was having surgery, I mean, we had surgery at the same time. It was just don't smoke. That was the only thing that I heard. What are some things that you've heard in terms of doing in advance to make sure that you can heal well? Watching what you're eating and, you know, trying, I guess, trying to be as fit as you can be before you go. Again, exercising. I think a stress level can be quite high. So try not to take stress into your surgery with you. If you can leave it behind, that sort of thing. We normally don't talk about those things, but be mentally prepared. Again, meditation would probably help. And I don't think that I was able to do any of these things, especially not knowing, really having a date to be able to work towards. When I first had my surgery, it was, oh, you're going tomorrow. No, you're not going. Yes, you're going next week. No, you're not going. You know, it's like, how can you prepare for that? So I think if you can get a date ahead of, a ahead of time and you know you're going, you can do all these things, but you can't if you don't have that sort of pre-surgery date. Yeah, that's wild. I actually didn't know that that was your experience at all. Everyone I know generally has a date six months, if not like a year in advance, that sort of thing. So they were just sort of like, oh, your, your date's next week, and then they changed it. What was happening up to that point is we had just got funding for it. Montreal wasn't prepared for any of the guys that were coming from British Columbia. They, you know, they were doing, I suppose, some fallows from people and maybe in Ontario. I don't know if they were doing Ontario, maybe Quebec. Maybe they weren't doing any fallows. I don't know. But they weren't really ready for us. So they didn't, you know, they didn't have the paperwork done. There was just all of these glitches going into it. And then on the other side of things, TransCare BC was new at it too. And you know, again, right up until the last minute, you were on tender hooks, not knowing whether you're going tomorrow or you're not going tomorrow. How can you ready yourself mentally or even physically for that kind of situation? I don't know that you really can. So is there anything that we haven't mentioned that you feel like did help you prepare or like that you did to prepare, even though you didn't quite know when you're going to have surgery? I don't think there was anything really that I did prepare for because I didn't know what I was going into. I hadn't really talked. I think I'd been online maybe with some guys in the States who had had the surgery and I was getting little snip, snippets from them, but I, I didn't know what I was walking into something that I didn't know what I was going to come out at the other end. It was like traveling to a new planet and not knowing what's going to greet you at the end. At when, the, when the spaceship opens up and you walk out, you're not sure who you're going to see, whether you're going to see Martians, what's going to happen to you when, when you go onto their new planet, what they're going, you know, are you going to be probed? <laughs> I had no, I had no idea. 
I'm just trying to remember whether I'd had a consult. Yeah, I think I had a a phone consultation, but that was for I I thought I was going ahead with Meta at that time, and wanted to see from him whether he could could actually do a Meta for me. And he said no. He he said certainly probably Fallow would be probably better for you. And then uh, so I never really got to to meet Doctor Belanger. Really, it's like you're just kind of offering yourself up to up to no you don't know what you're not offering yourself up to the gods you're offering yourself up to who knows martians yeah i really love that analogy by the way it's amazing. yeah yeah it just came into my mind it was kind of like yeah it's like i stepped out onto mars and there was a spaceship and they were who knows what they were going to do to me when they, when they got me i just had to really trust that i knew what i wanted you know yeah and I just had to blindly kind of jump off the cliff and, and hope that I was caught at the bottom, you know? Wow. I'm going to shift gears for us to talking about readiness assessments. And I know that the new WPAS standards of care just came out and I haven't read them. I know that there's some changes about the way that they're doing readiness assessments for surgeries now. Like they're only going to be requiring one letter of support from a mental health care provider, whereas the longest time it was like, you need to get your two letters. So one thing we were interested in the research project was how many people's readiness assessment actually was those those two letters, or if people were doing something different nowadays, right? And so we found that 80% of our participants said, yes, they had to get two letters, either from a therapist or another mental health care provider, which is interesting. That means 20% of people said that they didn't need to do that. They did something mm-hmm. different. It could have been workshops or classes that they took or they only needed to get one letter in combination with something else. But so that was an interesting finding. Then in a follow-up to that question, we asked how useful was this method of approval for preparing you to have surgery? And it was that's a fun response there. So most commonly people said that it was not useful at all. So the 55% of the people who had these two letters said that this was not useful at all in preparing them for for surgery. (laughs) What do you think about that? As far as the readiness assessment that I had, I had to meet with uh, the psychiatrist at the time. And when I met with her, she, she talked to me for a period of time and asked me the standard questions. But I, I got a sense from her that she thought it was just another hoop too. You know, she wasn't, she wasn't really feeling that, that it needed to have to be done, but it had to be done. And so then I had to have a letter from her. And I think I had to have one more letter from either a psychologist or a therapist of some sort. So I went to see her. Same thing. They were just kind of like going through the motions. And personally, I just think it's ridiculous to have to have an assessment from anybody. If I had to have heart surgery or, or you know, have my appendix out. I don't have to go see a psychiatrist, for God's sake. When I decided to, to go through with fallow, I was 52. And I think by that age, you kind of know what you want to do with your own damn body. And it just reminded me of back in the 70s and 60s in the feminist movement and, and not having any control over your body and having these gatekeepers a psychiatrist, psychologists, uh, government officials telling you that you have to tick off all these boxes and you better damn well make sure that you know what you're doing so that we don't have to be stuck with all these lawsuits later on. So it was it was a sham as far as I'm concerned. And I'm really glad to hear that maybe it's going the wayside. 
I don't know any other surgery where you have to go see somebody and have an assessment. And it's more of a mental assessment. It's not a physical assessment. Exactly. That's that's my problem with it, too, is that it doesn't actually assess if someone's really ready for surgery. It just checks the boxes, like you mentioned. Like, we, we could have an assessment process where it's like, okay, how ready do you feel? What do we need to do to make you feel ready? How can we get you there? Like, you can work with someone to get them to feel ready. This is not that. Well, the people that I was meeting with, the psychiatrist and the therapist, because it was so new, they had just approved funding. And as far as they were concerned, they didn't know what, there were no results from fallow there. They didn't know. They weren't there to, to know that I felt comfortable with it because nobody knew when we, we had to do a human rights case early on before the funding came through. And one of the things the BC government at the time, the reason they were holding back funding for fallows is they had heard that it was experimental. It was an experimental surgery and that they didn't have the results. So they couldn't send BC residents to have a surgery that had not been proven. So when I went to see the psychiatrist, I mean, she didn't know anything more than that. So again, I was having an assessment for a procedure that was not experimental. I didn't agree with that. I thought, you know, they were doing fallows in the States. And this so was 2015, not- is that right? This was 20, probably 2014, yeah. Okay, yeah. Just checking. The funding, the funding only came, well, no, the funding didn't come through in 2014. I was working in a newsroom here in Victoria, and we got a news release in, I don't know what the month was, but it was 2014, saying that the government was now approving, the BC government approved phalloplasty surgeries but there was a cap there. You, they would only do five a year. So the funding came through. I was on a Facebook page with trans guys in BC. Nobody was getting a phone call. Even the five weren't, you know, the five. We knew there was a wait list of at least 100 guys. And it not just fallow, but meta. So anyway, at that point, because I was a news reporter myself, I decided, and I was too close to the, the story, I, I phoned a reporter who I knew was covering trans and LGBTQ issues for the Victoria Times colonists. And I said, can you give Montreal a call and see if they know of any guys that are now being put through? And Montreal was the only place you could go for surgery then. So she phoned and she got back to me. She's not a single guy. And Montreal didn't even know that we were, we had had our funding approved. And for two years, I think it was almost until I, I was probably one of the first fallows to go through. It was two years before that money started to show up and we were approved. And there were maybe myself and maybe one other guy from BC were now kind of the wheel was now turning. Probably at the time, since no one knew anything about anything. They were just sort of going through these motions. This must be what we should just do because I guess because yeah. of that standards of care set it. Yeah, my understanding was that probably what they had done at that point is uh, the psychiatrist that I saw, I think she was quite up on things. And I think she just went to WPATH. I think she was the president of WPATH at the time. And so she knew what was needed, what could. And again, it, it, it said that you had to have the two letters. But I don't think she had any idea beyond that about Montreal, the process, 
the surgeons, she hadn't, none of the guys in BC had even gone yet. So again, she, I think she looked at WPATH and, and her knowledge of WPATH and said, okay, this is what we need to do to get the ball rolling and we've got to do it by the book. I think that's probably how it is for a lot of people there, but the people who are doing the readiness assessments don't really know much or if, if at all anything. And so they just sort of were like, here are these guidelines, I guess we'll just do this because this must be what to do. It doesn't give anyone any feeling of comfort to know that the people that are doing the assessments don't really know the process. They don't have never really talked to any of the people coming back from the surgeries. That might have changed now. But at the time, it was the blind leading the blind. I couldn't get any feeling of comfort from anybody. They're not there to hold your hand. <laughs> and I, I guess that's not what you expect. But it was kind of freaky sitting in front of a psychiatrist and having to prove that I needed surgery that she knew nothing about. So beyond just readiness assessments, we actually did have a series of questions in the survey where we asked people what resources they did access when they were preparing for surgery. And then we followed up asking them how useful those resource resources were. The first question was just which of these resources did you access when you were preparing for surgery? It included Facebook groups or Reddit, surgical consults, which everyone should have checked and they did, reading blogs or books, readiness assessments, those sorts of things. So basically what people told us was that Facebook and Reddit groups were the most useful resource that they accessed prior to surgery. So on a scale of one to five, that was a 4.5 people said. So quite highly rated. And then surgical consults were close behind that at a rated on a 4.3 and blogs are below that. And then conversation with peers. And in last place was readiness assessments. So that only got a score of 2.5 out of five for its utility. <laughs> Doesn't surprise me. No, it would be at the bottom of, uh, of my list as well. It told me nothing about what was what I was getting ready for or was going forward with. <laughs> you mentioned, I think, really briefly that you did have some conversation with some other guys maybe who had surgery. Um, can you say more about that? Like, was that useful to you at all? And if so, what was useful? Yeah, and I think uh, most useful for was talking to other guys that had had surgery, whether it be meta or fallow, because I was hoping to go for fallow at that point. I think there were a few guys on Facebook groups in the US that I had talked to, not on the phone, but messaged, asking them questions. And again, they were very, very helpful in giving me, you know, pointers on what to expect. And I don't think there was any Facebook group for Montreal at the time that would have been helpful. But again, there weren't any guys that had, had you know, that would have been silly because none of the guys had had fallow. But some of them had it in the States. Is there anything else about resources that were useful in preparing you for surgery or anything else you can think of about what was helpful in preparing you? I think what was also helpful was uh, going online, um, just reading everything I could read, whether it be, you know, even though what didn't really specify my surgeon, I was able to read about phalloplasty and at the time, even back six years ago, there's still quite a bit online that was very useful and helpful. And even though I couldn't really say, well, that's what my surgeon does and that's his or her technique, I was still able to get some of the basics on how they do radial arm phalloplasty and 
you know, the skin that they take from the arm and how that happens. And there were diagrams that uh, showed me how it was done. So I had a pretty good idea of the technique that they used when it came to RFF. That's one of the few things that were really available back then. At least there was something that you can like go online and you can see about how the surgery, how the surgery was actually done. And again, I wasn't really able to see any, any um, real life photos or videos. It was mostly, you know, diagrams on, you know, where they take the skin from and that sort of thing. But there wasn't really anything to show me results at the, at that time. And again, I think it probably wouldn't have been useful for me to see a lot of the results because I think that can actually be distracting before you have surgery is to look at all these results and go, you know, I want it to look like that. I want it to look like this, or I don't want it to look like that. I think that they're all quite different. Even the same surgeon sometimes can actually have two or three different uh, visual presentations of results depending on when they do them and, and, you know, whether they've uh, learned a new, you know, different techniques or, or that sort of thing. So I think it can actually be a negative to look at some of the actual results before you go in. Before you have surgery, there's so much of a focus on what is it going to look like? And then you have it and you start to feel it and connect with it. And it's, it's a part of your body as opposed to just focusing on what it looks like. The next section is about making decisions about surgery. We tried really hard to make a question in this survey that kind of teased apart the difference between what people really, really wanted or like how important certain things were for them versus what they ended up having for surgery. I don't want to use the word compromise. You know, some people maybe really want urethral lengthening. They really want to stand to pee, but they just don't want the risk of that. So they decide not to have it. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. We talked about the difference between these high in the sky ideals is what we ended up calling them. And then the more practical decisions of what people actually choose to have for their bodies based on, you know, all of these other factors. So when we did ask that, we found that there were more people who said they would have had phalloplasty than actually did. So some people who had metoidioplasty, actually their ideal was to have phalloplasty, but for whatever reason, they didn't. There were also people who wanted to have urethral lengthening, but they did not have it. And that might be for a number of reasons, like like worry about risk and that sort of thing. And 10 people said that vaginectomy was not part of their ideal, but they ended up having it anyway. And that's all really interesting. What were some things that you thought about when deciding to have the surgery and sort of sub-surgeries that you have, or did you not have the decision in any of that? What were you thinking about? I was pretty well set on metoidioplasty. And at that point, I went down to the States to have it in California. And again, not knowing, not having the resources, not knowing kind of what she could do. Basically, I wound up with just a release. She said that, you know, she, she gave me, she built it up to make it sound like I'm going to be very happy with the results and this is going to be great. And um, I, I think because I had heard at that point, even though I didn't see any results or knew any Canadians that had gone for phalloplasty, I just heard, you know, rumors and that it was, you know, it's not going to turn out the way you want it to look like. 
it's invasive, it's, it's too many surgeries, You're too, uh, I felt I was too old at the time. So I mainly, that's how I started off, is to have Meta and be happy with that. Once I got home and healed, I realized that no, it's, 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 not, it's not even near what I thought it would be. So that's when I decided to go to Dr. Broussard to see if he could fix it. And that was my intent when I went to see him, which was probably about a year after I'd had the Meta. And he looked at it and said, well, there's no, James, there's nothing I can really do to make it look any better or feel any better. And he suggested fallow. And at that point, again, I think the decision, it's hard to make a, a, a blanket decision. It's a process. And in anything in life, you'll look at it and you'll go, it's a yes or a no. And you make a decision and you go for it. With this with surgeries, bottom surgeries for men, it's a process. And as you go along, you learn new things about what's available or what you feel you can do or not do. And again, you make the best choice possible for that time. That's what my process was. And I think it's frustrating because so many decisions we make are fairly black and white. I know I don't like this, but I want to do this. Sometimes it might take a day or two to figure it out. No, it takes sometimes months, sometimes years to figure out what you want. And then you may not wind up with what you wanted in the beginning. So when the fallow came around and that was on the table, I thought at my age, I was 50, probably 50, 51 before I had the surgery, the fallow. I just thought, well, if I'm, I might as well go for the urethral lengthening. I knew I wanted the vaginectomy. And I, again, Dr. Broussard said to me, I'd be more happy with the fallow because at least I'd have some length. With the meta, I would have wound up with nothing. So I wanted to go forward with all of it at that point. But again, I didn't know that going into it. Yeah, definitely. I think it's hard to know what you're going to want at the end of the day. For me, even I thought I was going to be someone who went and got an penile implant. So, like, so I've had all my surgeries so far. I don't want to have another surgery mm-hmm. and I don't want the risk. Yeah. I've heard so many things happen with those that I'm, I'm comfortable with where my body's at right now. And I don't want to risk making a decision that makes me dislike my body more. <laughs> And just kind of adding to that, I think that as you go along and you have complications, you realize that you might have to take a few things off the list. You know, again, I'm in the same position. I had a penile implant, uh, became infected. It's not my top priority now. My priority is uh, some of the stricture stuff that I had to do. Penile implant became kind of bottom of the list. And again, I don't want to go through another surgery to have one put in. Exactly. I think there does become a point when you're just sort of like, I think this is, I don't want to use the phrase good enough. You just feel comfortable enough in your body to say, okay, for right now, I'm just calling it done. I'm okay with this for a bit. You get to be so done. (laughs) So done with surgeries. So you've already talked about deciding on a surgeon. I wish I had the choice of surgeons, I think that, and again, I don't know if I would have gone with Crane or Dr. Broussard. It would have been nice to have a choice. I knew that there, at that point, there were surgeons that were doing fallows that were amazing results, and Crane was one of them. And I would have liked to have been able to, even though last minute I had a chance to go see him, it's like, at that point, 
you go through so much to get to a point where you know, okay, this is Belanger is going to be doing my surgery. I'm going to Montreal. It's pretty hard to change tracks at that point. So it's all these what ifs. But I think in the end, I wound up fairly happy with her surgery. We asked our participants overall how prepared they felt for surgery. And I was very surprised to see the result that generally people said they felt very prepared. And maybe it's because a very large proportion of our sample are people who've had surgery in the last two years. So people really knew they didn't have surgery in 2016, like you and I. So yeah, people said they were really prepared. And I'm like, okay, so one of the things that's interesting about that is, do you think that there's a difference in how prepared you feel? If it was the day of surgery, and I asked you how prepared are you? Do you think you would have given a different answer on that day than you would give now if I asked you how prepared you were for surgery? So if I were to have surgery today for phalloplasty, given the information that I have now, I would say that I would be pretty well prepared going into it. But I think there are still some of the things that I didn't get answered while I was there and still haven't really had answers to, given the fact that it's been six years. But I think I would have definitely been more prepared going into it now, as opposed to when I did back in 2016. And what do you think is related to that difference? Now I know what, how long the healing took and how long it really was. Looking back, I would have liked to have been more prepared for home support. But again, that wasn't really an option in 2016. We really had to come home to nobody. And my family doctor at the time, I think he could have changed bandages and stuff like that, but he'd never seen a fallow before. I was the first fallow walking into his office. And community nurses... There was no arrangement made with the community health centers or community health units. Transcare BC at that point, when I knew I was coming home, I said, I've got to have something, you know, who's going to help me change my bandages? I don't know what the hell's going on here. And so they scrambled to get me hooked up with the community health unit. But the nurses didn't know anything about fallow. And they still don't. Yeah, they still don't. (laughs) They still don't. And they would come in and they'd bring supplies which was still helpful, but they would just throw the supplies through the door, didn't want to see it. I think there was one community health nurse that came in, and I think that she had issues, and she didn't even look at me. She just kind of, here you go, here's here's some saline, and here's some bandages and some gauze. And then I would get another one the next day, and she'd look at it to, to see, make sure it wasn't infected. And I suppose at the bottom line, it could have gone to my doctor or emergency, but there was really no one here to help us. And we were so far away from our surgeon, thousands of miles from Montreal, in just the void. And I was the only one here that had just had the surgery, so I couldn't really depend on... I had friends that came in, and luckily they brought food and helped me with the dishes, but I couldn't even change my bed. I was living alone at the time. That was the worst part. It wasn't so much the healing and the pain. It was the not having any home support. I still don't think that's an option for people. That's where we really need a lot of the work is going into home support for us because you can ask the community health unit to come in, but they're not trained. No, and they might have better competence, so to speak. They might be more friendly, at least know what they're looking at, but 
it's still not the same as having someone there who's a friend or a family member help you. I was lucky in the sense that I had a friend who was uh, a lesbian, part of the LGBT community, who was an emergency room nurse. And she came in and helped me a lot. But if I hadn't had her, I don't know what would have happened. I had a few people come in to do some of the home support stuff, the cooking and cleaning. But she really helped me with the changing of the bandages and making sure that things were good. And even to the point in helping me to the toilet to make sure I was avoiding properly and all that stuff and helping me in the shower. I mean, that stuff is, and again, I don't think the community health nurses are being pushed enough. It's not even on their agenda. Do you think nowadays, though, that the younger people who are having surgery now, do you think they just know more about what to expect and this kind of stuff and they prepare themselves? Or do you think they have different resources available? They're a lot more prepared. There's a lot more online. There's a lot more people coming back from surgery that can talk to them about what to expect. The competency of the doctors that we have here in BC is a lot better. And I just think they know kind of more what to expect. And I think the resources are much better for them. It's much easier to get what they need. So yeah, I think as much as I kind of grip my teeth and I go, I wish I'd had that when I was going through, I'm really glad that it's there. And I'm glad that it is easier for people. One of the things we asked about, which I think is really interesting, is there's sort of this scale that was developed by another research team. And there's a series of questions about how prepared people feel for various things and covers overall how prepared were you for your hospital stay to deal with a catheter, to go home with a catheter. And I think the hospital stay piece is really interesting because probably similarly to you back in 2016, I did not know what to expect in the hospital. I was like, okay, I'm going to be in the hospital they're going to take care of me. And I think today people know a lot more about what they can expect while they're in the hospital. My question to you is, what do you think might be the same or different about preparing to be in the hospital for us who've had surgery quite a little while ago or for folks who've just had it recently? I didn't really know what to expect, but I had a positive experience because I think in the Montreal clinic, we were in the hospital for the three days The nurses, because it was a private hospital, I think they were able to care for us because they knew the procedure. They were handpicked by Dr. Broussard and Dr. Belanger, so they knew what they were doing, even though there were times where I thought they didn't know what they were doing. And then after the three-day period, we went into a convalescent, not a home, but it was attached to the hospital. And then we had registered nurses and LPNs looking after us for another nine days. There again, I think that came into my decision at the very last minute is I'd heard that guys that were going to Crane were being put into motel and eating food from the kitchen, like hamburgers and fries. And we were being fed nutritious meals there. We were constantly, there's somebody there watching us. I think I was pretty happy with the hospital care that I got. And it was actually far better than I expected it to be. I had a really good experience too. I mean, I lived in the city while next to the city I had surgery in. And so it was really easy to travel and just, I ended up being in the hospital for five days only and the staff were great. My hospital stay was very ideal. I have nothing to complain about there. Again, just kind of backtracking that after I left, so we had 12 days in Montreal, but then that was it. 
you're cut off. Then all of a sudden they cut the tether and you're into nowhere because sending you home to Victoria after being on a plane for that long, you come home to nothing. And then to get a hold of Montreal, they weren't answering. So it's like out of sight, out of mind. Once you're gone, you're gone. They're looking after new patients. So we had really good care up until that 12th day. And then there was nothing. We have questions in our survey about how far people traveled for surgery and how that travel impacted them. That's going to be a lot, I think, to unpack because having to travel far and then come home to nothing, like you said, that's, that's such a challenge. So in this scale of preparedness that we had in the survey, the item that was rated lowest, so people said they were least prepared for this, was coping with a catheter when they got home. And this would be a separate pupic catheter, likely. Was that something that you experienced, having a catheter when you came home? Yeah, when I came back, I did have a catheter. They gave me basic instructions. Luckily, my friend who had worked in the hospital was able to help me with that. So I don't think it was really an issue for me. Just the issue for me was my arm and the wound care, keeping it wrapped and also the healing process of the arm and having three separate wound areas. You have the arm, you have the crotch area, and then you've got your leg. That's a lot to deal with. So I think just keeping up with the wound care was my biggest challenge. The catheter really wasn't, it was uncomfortable, but I knew I had to have it in for a certain period of time. They gave me, it was almost like a prescription to go to my doctor to have it taken out. After a certain two weeks, you go and have it taken out. And that was easy. I just went to my doctor and he took it out. It wasn't really an issue. A lot of our participants had a lot of an, an easier go of the rest of it than you did. And so maybe it's because all that stuff was easier than the catheter. It was suddenly like really hard. Yeah. Who knows? I didn't have a subrepubic catheter because I didn't have UL. So I can't comment here. It seems very uncomfortable. Oh, it's uncomfortable. Let me tell you. And you have to have it in. I think I had it three weeks. I had it in a week from the surgery there. And then another two weeks when I got home. So it was three weeks. Boy, it felt good to have that sucker out. I can only imagine. So 91% of our samples said that they agreed they were prepared for surgery. So I guess a lot of those people would have been recent within the last two years. Yeah, exactly. That's good though. It's good. I'm glad people are feeling more prepared than maybe folks were when you and I had surgery. I'm curious what is happening for them that's making them feel more prepared. If there's formal workshops or things that their surgeons are using to help them, or if it's really just proliferation of content that's available on the internet and people are just doing all of the work themselves, it's probably the latter. There's a difference between how participants rated their level of preparedness for surgery and how well they felt their surgical team prepared them for surgery. So 17% said that they did not think that their surgical care team spent enough time preparing them for surgery. As you were preparing for surgery, how much did you feel like it was your responsibility to prepare yourself versus your surgical care team preparing you? I expected my surgical team to help me prepare for the surgery once I got there to Montreal, but I still felt the responsibility was mine to prepare myself for surgery Once I had my surgery and I was in Montreal, they were very helpful, but getting me ready, the surgical team 
even the consult that I had the day before with a surgeon who I'd never met before. (laughs) I don't know if she really laid it out for me, what to expect. So no, I think I felt that it was my responsibility to be prepared. But as far as telling me you're going to have this catheter, you're going to have your arm wrapped, there was none of that really. Yeah, I really wonder about this because I wonder how much it should be. I feel like it's so much pressure put on the patient to prepare themselves. In the community, we say things like do your research, you know, how much of the patient's responsibility should it really be to do all of that research is a question that I have. Should it really be the surgeons who are like, here's everything you need to know. Here's what you can expect. Here's how you should prepare. Should it be their responsibility to do that? Or should we just be doing it ourselves? Because that's the only option. I think that that'll come in time. You know, you look at six years, doesn't seem like a long period of time. It seems almost like 20 years that we've come that far because we had to come that far that fast. And I think that surgeons, the team, the surgeons are figuring out who they want in their team. They want their team to know what their responsibility is. So it's becoming a lot clearer as they do more surgeries. But I think back in 2016, they hadn't done enough. And I think even still, they still haven't done enough to really have everything kind of running the way it should run. Six years ago when we had surgery, it doesn't feel like it was that long ago, but someone asked me recently when I had surgery and I was like, oh, it was six years ago. And they said something like, oh, so you're like, OG then. And I was like, six years ago? And you're calling me OG? Yeah. Well, it, you know, we've come a long way since then for sure. Yeah. I think a lot has changed in those six years. What do you think an ideal process would be for preparing people to have follower meta? To have better communication with their surgeon. That seems to be a real issue all the way around is on any given day, you can't get an email through to your surgeon if you still have questions. So you have your consult, you can't remember all the questions that you want to ask. And if you have questions after, God forbid, then you go in the day of your surgery and you go, oh, wait a minute, you're so stressed out. So an ideal situation would be better communication with your surgeon and the team, more resources as far as them sending you a package, emailing you a package of everything you need to know. And also an ideal situation is what's set up at home for you, certainly if you live alone. And even if you live, you know, you have a partner, that partner can't do everything for you. So there has to be resources when you come home and that has to be set up ahead of time. So you know that when you get home, if you start bleeding out or you need something changed, this is what you do. This is where you go. And then I think, I don't know if they have them. I don't know if some of the other surgeons have them. It would be great to have a video of the surgeon explaining things to you so that they can send you that link and you can watch it a few times, you know, showing the the operating room with RFF, they can show you drawing something on the person's arm. This is the area that's going to be drawn you know, not getting into the graphic stuff, but maybe, you know, some more kind of animation things happening. And each surgeon should have that available to their patients. And there shouldn't be any guesswork on the patient's part as to what's going to happen once they get in that OR. That would be an ideal situation. To add on to it, like add on my own ideals to your ideal. (laughs) But I think if we had really good numbers about rates of complications that we can say to someone, here's what you can actually expect. You know, 80% of Mm -hmm. people 
have issues with their urethral lengthening. And that way the person can really be informed about what to expect. No, they might need to take more time off work or maybe change their decisions if the risk is too high. Doctors do not like talking about complications, especially their complications. That's a touchy point. And I don't think we'll ever get doctors to that point where they'll talk about some of the complications. I think generally they could, yeah, it would be easy enough for them to talk about UL strictures and that sort of thing. And then again, the complications with fallow, they differ from each patient. A stricture can be a certain type of issue for me, and this is what I had to have done to remedy it, whereas another guy can have a stricture and have something else done. So it gets pretty complicated. I find it kind of ridiculous that we're here being like, for our surgeries, we just want to know what you're going to do. And that's just where we're at right now. Just please tell us what the plan is. We shouldn't have to be asking. And yet we're going in and being put under anesthetic and under the knife from a doctor who can't even explain it. It really is, I think most of the people that I've talked to that have gone through the surgery, is you really have to throw caution to the wind and you really have to be a trusting individual. And even then, a doctor might say to you, well, I've only done a couple of these. But again, I think we know what we need and what we want. It's that important for us to be able to put ourselves under that kind of trust and stress. I really think it does. I think that We need the information, we need all of these changes, but at the same time, the fact that they're not there and people still clearly need surgery and access it, it speaks to how important the surgery is for people that even without these basic things like the surgeon fully describing what they're going to do, we still go and get the surgery that we need. Is there anything else you'd like to say about preparing for surgery? It's a pretty complex situation and it varies, so it's really hard to kind of nail it. I think we covered a lot of it, but I think just I'm hoping that we're getting to a point where we don't have to be guessing anymore and the professionals know what they're doing. I still go to my family doctor and have to tell him kind of what I need. So it empowers you, but it also creates a bit of a situation where you can't really depend on physicians and doctors to be able to know what's right for you. And what it comes down to is we know what's right for us. Thanks so much for joining me, James. This was a great chat. And FYI for our listeners, we had a bunch of tech challenges recording this episode. It ended up not being recorded with studio equipment, so I hope you enjoyed it nonetheless. It was great talking about preparing or lack of ability to prepare for surgery back in 2016. And like James and I both mentioned, a lot has changed since then. For listeners who are thinking about having surgery or currently preparing, definitely consider what we shared, but also recognize that it might be different from what happens for you. Especially now that the WPATH standards of care have changed, for instance, most places are no longer requiring two letters from a mental health care provider in order to refer patients for surgery. With this change, I hope you all are getting more support from your care team as you prepare, and need to rely less on social media or your peers. I also really hope that this podcast series can help those of you who are preparing for surgery by sharing the results and the experiences of our interviewees. That's it for today. Next time, our episode will focus on recovering from phalloplasty. It'll cover topics like hospital stay, caretaking, dealing with complications, and getting back to normal after surgery. <laughs>